When I think about who I want to be, I've always wanted to be a conduit for good ideas. And so as I've learned things over the years, whether in or out of Cutco, I've strived to find avenues for sharing that information or even just discussing it with others so that we can all learn faster. That's something I've been passionate about for a long time. When I think about my purpose for staying in Cutco for so long as I have, a big reason why is because of all the lives that have been built through this experience. I want that story to be told. I believe that most people in life want something more. They want change in some aspect of their life. So the Changing Lives theme for this podcast is extremely significant to me. By helping people develop their vision and develop the skills to succeed in the real world, I want to be someone who can help people to change their lives in the ways that they want. That's what really makes me tick. Throughout his career, Dan Cassetta has inspired tens of thousands of people to see things bigger in life and to make the changes that they wanted to make to live the lives that they envisioned. I'm really fortunate that I'm one of those people. My name is John Berghoff, and I met Dan 21 years ago when I started selling Cutco knives in his sales office in San Jose, California. And I've told people before that I can divide my life into BD and AD, before Dan and after Dan. And the person I was before meeting Dan, well, I needed a mentor to unlock my full potential. And as Dan has done for so many people, he helped me in big ways to see new possibilities and to become, I truly believe, the best version that I could become. As the guest host for this special 100th episode of Changing Lives Selling Knives, I'm honored to have gotten a chance to uncover Dan's story and some of the lessons along the way. I know that you will gain great insight into why and how Dan continues to change lives today. Welcome to Changing Lives Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Hello. Welcome to episode 100. This is not Dan. I'm John Berghoff, and I have somehow found myself with the great privilege of hosting episode number 100 of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, and I get to interview your regular host, Dan. Dan, thanks for the opportunity, man. This is so cool. Yeah, John. Thanks for being willing to do this with me. Yeah, it just struck me that uh, I think we were together however many months ago for episode one, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Here here we are, 100 episodes. So first of all, today's going to be about checking in and 
you're the guest. And so we're going to learn about you, maybe go places that you've not had a chance to go. And, but I also want to just start by saying congratulations to, to get this podcast off the ground and all the folks that you must have served inside and outside the Cutco world. It's uh, the dedication and perseverance that it takes to follow through to get to this point. Way to go, man. Super yeah. awesome. Well, thank you. And thanks for participating as a guest as you have. Yeah, I'm happy to. Well, so let's start with this. Who would have thought when you started this podcast that episode 100 would land right in the middle of a once in a civilization, whatever this is, pandemic, right? I mean, how crazy is this? It's pretty crazy for sure. Yeah. What's, uh, you and I haven't talked for a little while. How are things going for you? How, how are you approaching this, dealing with this, struggling, winning? What's going on? Yeah. Well, personally, we're working at home, as is everybody. My wife is a banker in commercial lending. So she was particularly busy, right? When the um, government loan programs all became available, she's yeah. working on a daily basis. And we have two kids, they're six years old and three years old. So they have their little Zoom classes, you know, once or twice a day. And nice. other than that, they're spending a lot of time playing with each other. And uh, we're trying to get in at least some semblance of a full work day with the kids being around. But, uh, you know, we live in a neighborhood where they can get out in the street. We live at the end of a long dead end street. We're at the very end and there's some other families with kids. And usually at the end of the day, there's a bunch of kids out there riding bikes and scooters and playing in the street. And it's kind of nice. So, you know, family wise, it's been, it's been all right. I'm sure a lot of other people have it a lot worse. So, you know, no complaints that end. business wise has been a whirlwind because we went from, you know, oh my gosh, how are we going to handle this to, figuring out a lot of the answers to how we're going to handle this to having those answers work better than we thought they were going to, to now, like we have a positive problem on our hand of trying to figure out uh, how we're going to handle the influx of recruiting we're going to have this summer and yeah. um, manage all the sales reps and all the other things that uh, go along with uh, running a fast growing organization. So yeah. it's been, uh, it's been crazy. Isn't that wild? The number of things that so many of us are discovering like, wow, there's a new way to do it. Well, this way was always available, but necessity forced us to discover it, right? Exactly. Yeah. That is exactly true. That's what's happening for us right now. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to surprise you with a question here that, I, that just to go right into the depths of your soul in the face of this crisis, what's maybe, uh, what's maybe one, been one of the, the biggest lessons that you've learned in the last four weeks about yourself, about people, about the world that maybe has come up that, that was new or surprising or, you know, what's something that you've learned that's been most significant in the face of all this? Because you're, you're someone who I just respect hearing how, you know, what you've learned through this. Yeah. So we always have told people that what we know is sort of the tip of the iceberg and that there's just so much more out there that's available for us. And that's why ongoing learning is so important because you're constantly expanding your mind and expanding your capacity. And I have just had that revealed to me at a whole new level here in the past one to two months as we've tackled the challenges and seen like what can happen with some innovation, with some creativity, with some resilience. You know, what are the things that can come out have certainly been shown to me. And I would also add that I think that people believe what they want to believe and that this situation has kind of shown that at an even higher level on both sides of the spectrum, you know, and we don't even know like what 
is actually the facts of this pandemic yeah. yet and how it's all going to turn out and whether what we're doing was helping or not or any of that stuff all sort of remains to be seen. But I do think that going into this, I was somebody who's always been like super optimistic and like no problem would, would be a very common thing that you'd hear in my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as this began unfolding, like that was my mindset about everything that was going to unfold. It's like, you know, no problem. We're going to, we're going to handle it. We're going to be fine. And maybe that is the case, but maybe, maybe it wasn't right. Because obviously this situation has turned out to be a lot more serious than I think 90 or 95% of people thought just two months ago. And, uh, it's been interesting to see that reveal itself over the last couple of months. Yeah. This reminds me of one of the things that I feel like you taught me directly and indirectly. That was maybe one of the more important lessons I learned from my first days selling Cutco was the, the ability to live with uncertainty and that, you know, there's some correlation between our ability to live with uncertainty and our ability to, you know, be fulfilled or happy or uh, just make our way through the day and feel like you're acknowledging something that we're probably all living with a type of forced uncertainty right now that we've never faced. And, you know, I think what I'd love to go into, Dan, is, you know, you taught me that in 1999. Then you taught me, hey, in the face of uncertainty, find certainty within yourself in who you want to be and how you're going to learn and how you're going to respond. I can't control what happens outside of me, but I can control what I do inside. I'd love to actually learn a little bit about you and how you became the person that you were for me and for many others. And it'd be fun to go back into even pre-Cutco, like what shaped you? to be who you are, even before Cutco was around. If you don't mind me going back there, I'd love to know. Yeah, I'd love to talk about it and share. I I feel like everything that we can talk about today, the facets of my personal life before Cutco, and then certainly all of the elements of what I've learned during my experience with Cutco and Vector have have prepared me for a time like this. Mm. The things like resilience, self-reliance, developed as a child, things like positive mental attitude that became, you know, a hallmark of what I've learned throughout my time in Vector, being able to influence others and having adaptability and, uh, you know, a willingness to learn. These are all facets of what we can talk about that I feel like are, are coming out right now in ways that, uh, I, I wouldn't have known. So I can take it back, John, to tell our guests about my family background. My parents were both immigrants. Mm -hmm. So my father was born in Italy and my mother was born in France. And my dad went to work in France in the years following World War II. Mm. My mom lived in Eastern France and the Nazis actually marched down her street when she was eight years old. And her town had a lot of damage done to it through the war. And so there was a need for people who could be construction workers in, in France. And my dad went from Italy to France to go help rebuild. He was a bricklayer by trade. And um, that's where he met my mom. And they got married in France. They had my sister in France. My sister is almost 17 years older than I am. And then they moved to Italy for a while. And then ultimately, they moved to America. And they had three suitcases and a little girl. Uh, is what they had when they moved to America. So my family came from having nothing 
And uh, that was a, a lesson. I learned a lot of lessons around that as a child. Yeah. I was definitely not one of the cool kids in school. Uh, I was a bit of a misfit throughout most of my years of grammar school and certainly high school for sure. Yeah. Always kind of wanted to fit in. I think that that created a real desire for achievement and recognition. Mm, like just yeah. to kind of show that like, Hey, you know what? You know, I am, I am someone. And that drove me later in life. And, you know, while I was kind of a misfit socially, I was very precocious academically. So I, w- I always did very well at school. I can remember when I was in seventh grade that there was like a team of psychologists that came to my grammar school to do a study on precocious kids. And I was submitted as a subject for them. And I don't remember all of what we did, but I do remember that they gave me the SAT test in seventh grade with no preparation. It was just here, take this. This is something juniors take in high school. And I took the SAT test in seventh grade and scored 1100 in seventh grade, which was pretty interesting. That was one thing I remembered. So I I just had this confidence about me that I could learn anything because I was good academically. So I think that element of being able to learn quickly along with a motivation to sort of prove who I could be, those things served me. And then work ethic from my parents, you know, I think those things served me when I got to Vector. Yeah. Tell us about when you got to Vector, any of your formative memories, whether it was mentors you had or moments that stick out that were defining moments for you when you got into Vector those yeah. early years. Yeah. Well, there were a number of defining moments and and I've had some really incredible people for sure I've been able to be around. I was 17 years old when I started. I had finished high school in, you know, the end of May and I was working at a movie theater and I was going to be starting college in September. I went to Santa Clara University and I thought, you know, it's be good to have a job where I could actually learn something and so in July, I happened to stumble upon an ad for, uh, you know, working with Vector and Cutco and went into the interview. And initially, my first thought was, I don't know if I could do something like this. And, you know, those thoughts quickly transformed into, this is exactly what I need to do. This is perfect. Like, it'll be hard. It'll challenge me, but I'll learn from it. And I was in a situation where, you know, my mom and dad paid my bills and paid my college. And so I wasn't worried about whether I would earn enough income from the job. I knew I would at least be able to do reasonably well because I really liked Cutco and thought my mom would like it. Other people like her would like it. And so I got started. One of my first transformative experiences was when I called referrals for the first time. So I got a really hot list of referrals. I did an appointment in a town I know you used to sell a lot in called Atherton. Yeah, And I got um, some really good referrals from one of my friend's mother's there. Don't don't mess up with those leads. Don't mess up with those leads. Yeah. Well, I messed up because I started calling (laughs) them before I was taught how to get, how to call referrals. I was probably using the training appointment approach with them. And I don't remember exactly what happened. I, I remember I got, I actually got three appointments, but I felt like I was rejected. I felt like I had failed. And I had one of those, you know, I'm not sure this is for me conversations with my manager. Yeah. And my manager quickly pivoted and, and helped me realize that I had actually done well. He's like, wait a minute, you were calling referrals and you got three appointments? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I haven't even taught you how to call referrals yet. He says, you're, you're the man. Yes. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> what? 
You know, he, he helped shape my thinking that I had actually succeeded where I thought I had failed. Mm. My expectations might have been out of whack, but also I was doing something before I'd even been taught how to do it. And I actually had a little bit of success with it. So I think I was ready to quit at that moment, but he helped take me past that, which was so important in our lives to have people that can help take us past those times where we might venture down the wrong path. Right. Yeah. And yeah. he was there for me in that moment. Shout out to Randy Hugh, my original district manager. I had a chance to be around Filippo Mancini as my division manager, who was an incredible example of charisma and energy and work ethic. And then I got, uh, I got to meet people like Bruce Goodman and Don Mulrath and others as I advanced, who were key mentors out here in the western part of Cutco and Vector for me during those years. So I did all right as a sales rep for about six weeks that summer. And then I went to school. The following summer, I was an assistant manager. And so I was helping reps and, you know, working really hard in the office. And then I became a branch manager after that. I ran two branches during college, two summers in a row, was number one in the company in the second summer, which we can definitely get into a little bit more about. And then when I graduated, I thought, well, I'm good at this. This is a great place to be. I might as well keep doing it. Start, you know, keep doing it here for a while. So I love that lesson, Dan, by the way, when your first manager helped you to reframe that an experience that you viewed as a failure was actually a success. As soon as you said that, it made me think of quite a few situations in my work and my life currently right now that uh, sometimes we don't always have people around us to do that reframing. And it can be really easy to see a moment or an experience or a stage or a phase in our work as a failure. And I know you did that for me in my early Cutco career is reframing that maybe there isn't really such thing as a failure. There's just learning or there's actually wins that we forget to recognize. And the learnings are a win. You know, if we take the long-term view, which is so hard to do when we get distracted by the present challenges. So Dan, you, you got into Cutco. You had some of these great mentors. By the way, I have a photo in a frame. I'm not going to get up because I'm all tethered into the thing here with Bruce and Don Muellrath and uh, Mike Lancelot all in one photo. It's SC2 in 1999. <laughs> Maybe that's the only time they're all in one room together. Who knows? Tell us about the, the, how you view the stages of your career because it's been, it's been a long career. How do you view it in stages and how's your career evolved? Yeah, that's a great question, John. I feel like when I was a new district manager, the first stage would have been what I would call a learning stage. So I was asking a lot of questions of successful people, both in the company and outside of the company, attempting to learn how to be a leader, learn the different facets of the business, trying to get better at things as I went along. I think I got pretty good at training sales reps and working with people pretty early. But my skills in like the recruiting side of the business probably weren't so good in the early phases of my career. And that was something that I kind of worked on and got better at. I think that I progressed into what I would call a, a, a stage where I was sort of a rising star in the company. Maybe uh, two years after I started as a manager, I was probably in that stage and stayed in that stage for, for a while where I became one of the top managers, but I wasn't yet achieving up to my full potential, but could see that there was a lot more out there that was motivating and inspiring. And I think competition really drove me a lot during that stage. 
I think I had a breakthrough in around 1999, probably because you came onto the team that summer. You're welcome. Uh, or thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, I'm not even joking when I say that because you truly did have an influence on a lot of people that created a compounding yeah. effect of excellence on our team. But you know, that year, our office was number one in the company. It started a streak of three years in a row being number one in the company, which I don't think anyone had ever done up until then. And I don't think anyone did until 2015, 16, 17, Drew Frank probably. But uh, we really had a quantum leap in 1999. And uh, that was where I think I put all the aspects of the business together. I was able to have really good recruiting. I was able to have really good training. I was able to have excellent back-end development so that people stuck around. We retained a lot of people. We built some huge meetings. We had a summer team meeting with 113 people at it, one of those years in there, in my office. And we had uh, some great, great leaders that grew out of that time period, including you. And that was you know, where I really elevated myself to the top level in the company. Can I draw attention to something here, Dan? Yeah. So I, I didn't know this about you, but so by your observation right now, 1999 was a year where you got to this new stage or new level. And it had never really hit me until right now that you had been a manager at that point previously for how many years? Eight, nine, ten at that point? Seven years. Okay. Here's why I just wanted to clarify that. Because when I came into your office, as much as you give me credit for things I did, I remember very vividly, I was stepping into a culture that every inhale and exhale, it was about excellence and it was about people supporting each other and standing for being our best selves. And I think it's, it's noteworthy to point out that there was seven years before you got to that point. What was the first year you were a Cutco rep, by the way, just to clarify? Summer of 1988. Okay. So really another way of looking at it is 11 years after you started that journey within that company, you hit that kind of tipping point. And I know you had successes along the way, but I just, I'm only noting this because as I'm hearing you share your story, it's reminding me of how patient I need to be in certain things that I sometimes want to accomplish something in you know months or weeks or days. And uh, it's just a good reminder for me that it was 10 years from the day you walked in until you started winning back to back to back silver cup. And I think that's, that can be a helpful reminder for any of us. Yeah, I do think there was some element of the sort of Chinese bamboo tree concept. Mm. That's a story that I first heard from Zig Ziglar that, you know, you, you feed and water this tree for many months and not much happens. And then all of a sudden, in a short amount of time, it grows like 90 feet or something like that. And, and I feel like there was some element of that to my career. The personal growth aspect here plays a large role in this. And, you know, if you go back to 1990, my original manager, Randy, coerced me to go see Tony Robbins in the, uh, you know, uh, UPW weekend seminar that, that Robbins runs. It was, uh, I believe it was April of 1990 in San Jose. And he says, hey, this guy's coming to town. This is way before Tony Robbins was as famous as he is now. And Randy says, hey, this guy's coming to town and you should go see him. And I'm like, you know, it's Tony Robbins. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm familiar. You know, I've seen the late night commercials and stuff and had listened to some of his audios. 
And um, I said, what do I got to do? He says, well, you go to the seminary, buy a ticket. I'm like, okay, how much? He says, well, it's 595 bucks. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like I'm going to pay 600 bucks to go see Tony Robbins, you know, for a weekend yeah. and a seminar and, you know, sit in a chair. And he coerced me. He twisted my arm a little bit to go see Tony Robbins. And I went, I paid the 600 bucks, walked on fire on the Friday night, you know, and then had the Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday night, I believe it was back then, sessions. And it really changed my life. And not from the context of what I got from Tony Robbins, even though I think he's great. I learned a lot from him for sure. But what happened is it set me on this track of lifelong learning. I really loved the learning that came from hearing from a guy like Tony Robbins. It was new stuff that I didn't hear at school that was like so much more valuable and relevant to everyday life. And I was like, this is awesome. I want more of this. And I started to inhale all of his stuff. And he mentioned that his mentor was Jim Rohn. And then I bought everything Jim Rohn ever produced and inhaled all of it. And I was already into Zig Ziglar before this and certainly all of the other great motivational speakers of the day. And I began to study that stuff. And it was all being built into me into the point where once it was fully internalized and I could utilize it, that information came out. It really helped me a lot with developing my team and with, you know, and, and really uh, improving my own mental attitude towards every facet of my life. So I think it did kind of come to fruition all in that time frame. So Dan, you've been a passionate learner. By the way, the, the only disagreement I have with you talking about your stages is one thing I've, I've noticed is your learning stage has never ended. That's been an endless stage for you. And I've always been inspired by that. And I've loved that that was the greatest gift I think you gave to me was with all the success you had, you sent me to go to a Tony Robbins conference 10 years after somebody sent you, right? It could have wow. been easy for your ego to say, ah, just listen to me. And no, you, you gave the same advice that someone gave you. And that gave me a hunger to want to keep learning, right? Like the job of the teacher really isn't to teach, it's to inspire the students to want to learn when the teacher's not there. And I, mm. that's my belief. And you did that for me. And that leads to, I'd love to know in all of your career, one thing that I think you're known for is not only your ability to learn, but to clarify what are your own life and business philosophies and then teach those to others so that they then have success. What would you consider to be some of the big, the core philosophies that this life and career has brought to you at this moment in time? Yeah, that's a deep question to, to ponder. I would say that one of the philosophies for me would be the idea that success is not something you pursue, it's something you attract mm. by the person who you become. That's a Jim Rohnism. And it's always stood out to me as one of the most profound quotes or philosophies that I've heard. The idea is that, you know, the things you pursue can be elusive. Right? It's like trying to catch a butterfly. It doesn't always work that way. But through this process of growth and evolution and gaining in knowledge, insight, and skill, if you back that stuff up with some reasonable level of work ethic, it tends to work out for most people in a way that's extremely positive. And, you know, that's, as I said, where those, those years, 99, 2000, 2001 in particular, it all came together for me. I think that coming out of those years, John, 
I went into a stage where I was trying to figure out what's next for me. Who am I going to be in this world? Now that I feel like I've reached a pinnacle in the company I'm with, what else do I want to do? And that sort of evolved into me developing sort of a, a mission that I have to be someone that shares this idea that success is based on who you become. I, I've wanted to be a conduit for good ideas. And so as I've learned over the years, whatever it is that I've learned, anything inside Vector and Cutco or outside Vector and Cutco, I've strived to find avenues for sharing that information. Where can I teach this? Where can I share it? Or where can I just discuss it with others so that I learn more about it while they're learning from me? And that's been something that, that I've been passionate about so that as I advanced, you know, into my division manager career and ultimately my, you know, now my region manager career, that side of things has always been an itch that I've needed to scratch where I'm sharing the things that I'm learning with as wide of an audience as I can find that has pushed me to, you know, try to build audiences both inside Cutco and outside of Cutco to be able to share with. So just this whole idea of, attracting success through personal growth has mm. been a really critical element of success for me. I love um, that. I, it may have been a quote on the wall in the office when I was a rep, and I know it was something you used to say a lot, and it was probably a Jim Rohn quote, although I just credit you at this point, I've forgotten. But it was the idea that uh, life doesn't get easier, our skills get better. And, and it's the same concept, that, uh, uh, or it's similar. And you know, when you talk about success being uh, something that can be elusive, and we got to really ask, who are we being to attract what we want? Right now, in the middle of this COVID-19 situation, what a great opportunity for everyone to look in the mirror and say, who do I really want to be right now? Because it, I think this has just reminded all of us that in different words than what you said, we don't really have control. And I think what you taught me is that I can't really control all these things I want to control, but I can influence. And I can influence what happens by being the person that attracts these outcomes. I love that. You know, you, what you just said about who do we want to be during this particular crisis we're experiencing right now, that resonates with me at a very high level. And it's something that I really did start to think about right away when this began to unfold in early March. There's a lot of people out there who are like the doomsayers who are constantly sharing all of the like negative stuff that's going on around this in the interest of claiming that they're informing the public. And maybe they are, but it's mostly negative and depressing and debilitating to most people. Yeah. There's a lot of other people out there who are the complainers, right? That they can't stop complaining about, you know, well, oh my God, this is happening or that's happening. Or why is my governor doing this? Or why is the president doing that? Or why is this happening? And, and they're constantly complaining and like that that's completely worthless to other people. The complainers have no value. The doomsayers at least are informing people of some <laughs> things that might be facts, you know, but I just realized like, that's not who I want to be in mm. any situation, right? I'm, I'm not someone that's going to be there to complain. I'm not going to be someone there who's going to be there to spout doom and gloom, right? I want to be the optimist who pushes forward. I want to be the person who leads. I want to be the person that helps people have the right perspective on what's happening. And that's the way that I want to present myself in any sort of challenging time. 
And, and I think that that mentality has sort of borne itself out of some of the various challenges I've experienced, you know, during my Cutco career, because there have certainly been some great challenges. Shortly before you came along, we had a summer that was really, really hard. And we didn't have anything going in the early part of the summer in the way that we wanted it to. And, and I, I can still remember saying to people when I, when I described that summer that, you know, I had to have four hearts that summer, one for me, one for my pilot office manager, and one for each of my couple of assistant managers as well, because they were so depressed and so having such a hard time with the way things were unfolding in the early part of the summer. And we turned it around. Right. Our, our, we borrowed a theme that summer from the Houston Rockets, which we tweaked slightly. It was never underestimate the heart of a champion. And we had been a champion before and we had that heart and we were going to, we were underestimated early in the summer, but we were going to pull success out. And I can remember going through that. I can remember going through some pretty vast company changes that ha- happened around 2004, 2005. In many ways, similar to the changes we're experiencing now, they were different changes, but there was a rapid amount of change that was occurring and being able to deal with and work through that. And we had pioneers in the company like Mike Muriel, who were really helping people to see their way through that, that I learned from. I can remember in in 2014, we had an epic challenge in my division and in the Western region, where a significant number of our top people were recruited away from the company by another company that had some pretty deep pockets and big promises and pulled a lot of people away from us. I feel like I was at my most out front leading during that challenge where like every day I was trying to move us past that. And it was so hard. It was really the hardest experience I've ever had in business that particular year. But these are all parts of who I've wanted to be that I think is also coming out now and in this, this uh, time of this pandemic. Dan, one of the lessons that you taught me that I've appreciated the most and that's been very meaningful is actually the idea of in these bigger challenges, if there is anything we could control, it's not outside of us, it's inside of us, and it's the meaning that we give to those things around us. Anything you want to speak to that? The power of giving meaning, making meaning? Yeah, for sure. You asked me about like core philosophies, and certainly one of them is the idea that we, you know, success is based on who we become. But this one would be the other key one that I would definitely have wanted to share with the world here in this, our audience in this particular setting is the idea that we can choose the meaning for anything that happens in our life. I'm pretty sure I first heard that from Tony Robbins, who said, nothing in life has any meaning except the meaning we give it. I think I I can remember reading this in Man's Search for Meaning, the famous book by Viktor Frankl where he experiences, you know, the tragedies of the Nazi death camps in, you know, World War II and made it through those times and shared the point that the, his captors could take away all of his personal freedom, but they could never take away liberty. And that liberty was his ability to choose how he would feel in any given moment. And he would not ever allow them to take that away from him. Yeah. And I think that's such a great lesson. You know, anytime I'll hear my daughter say, you know, so-and-so made me mad today, talking about one of her friends at school or something. I try to remind her that, you know, no one has the power to make her mad, Mm -hmm. right? They will all do things, right? But that she now has the ability to decide how she's going to feel about it. 
you know, and she's six years old. I don't think she gets it all yet, but starting to get into that six-year-old little brain and eventually she'll understand that, you know, nobody has the power to make us feel any certain way. We have the ability to take any situation, any occurrence life and spin the meaning in a way that's constructive for us in moving forward. And that applies to virtually everything can happen to us, even the most significant tragedies that can happen to us. We can learn to find a meaning in it that can help us move forward with a little bit more confidence, a little bit more enthusiasm for life that can help us uh, to overcome those difficult times. And I've gone through the death of a roommate in college in a car accident to the death of a brother in his 30s to the death of my father and my mother, among other difficult life experiences. And these are the hardest ones, of course. But every day we experience some minor adversities. And it's so important to learn to deal with those adversities. And particularly the kinds that we experience on a daily basis are so minor in the big picture that you just got to learn to get over stuff quickly and move forward. And having that ability to choose the meaning for things, how you're going to feel about things, deciding how you're going to feel versus being a victim of other people, like that's all a part of a core life philosophy that I've developed that I feel like has been really instrumental throughout my life. And again, now during these challenging times. Yeah. I remember the first time it was at a Cutco meeting where I heard somebody tell the parable of the three bricklayers and, you know, there's different versions of it. But one of the things I love about the essence of that parable, and if anyone hasn't heard it, I mean, the, the abridged version, the abbreviated version is somebody walks up upon these three bricklayers and asks them, why are you doing what you're doing? Right. Which is kind of a fundamental search for meaning. And what's interesting is they're all doing the same thing presented with the same question. But if you know the parable, they give three different answers. And, you know, what you just shared is to remember that when we ask that question, why are we doing what we're doing? And the first bricklayer says to pay the bills, you know, it's a rational answer. It's understandable and it's, and it's not untrue. But then when you ask the second one and, you know, think there could be three salespeople listening to this conversation who all do the same thing, we're all facing the same pandemic challenge. And when asked, what's the meaning within this? You know, the second bricklayer says, well, I'm here to build a wall because this is my career, right? Very different from the first. And then the third bricklayer says, well, we're here building a concert hall so that one day this music will touch the souls of people we'll never meet. And the beautiful thing about that little parable is it reminds us that all three answers are true. But you know, that third bricklayer is certainly living a far more purpose-driven life and that the, the, all three bricklayers had freedom of control over how they prescribe a sense of purpose to what they do. I always think, Dan, that when people talk about purpose as a noun, like this thing that I find under a rock or after 40 days of meditation, we make it very difficult for ourselves. We set ourselves up to be disappointed. But what you taught me and are reminding us of is that finding purpose or having purpose, it's something we proactively architect, we craft it, we design it, we engineer it, we proactively can give whatever meaning to whatever we want. It doesn't have to do with what we do for work. It has to do with how we choose to purpose ourselves in that moment and give it, like, for example, behind your head is a sign that says, preceding the word selling knives, changing lives, right? Like, let's talk about that. Like what selling knives is one thing, but the meaning to you is it's about changing lives. Like, why is that important? 
Yeah, well, that's the name we chose for the podcast because it does have some real significance for me. When I think about my purpose for staying in Cutco Vector for so long as I have, a big reason is that we're sort of building that concert hall or that cathedral in terms of all the lives that are built through this experience. There are so many people, and John, you're one of the finest examples of this, who came into Cutco Vector atmosphere with a ton of potential for life, but needing something, you know, needing some skills or some inspiration, a path, a mentor, all of the above, maybe, and, and who got it here and who have gone on to do incredible things in the world. I wanted that story to be told, and I want to be someone who could be able to help people to change their lives and move their lives in the direction that they want. I believe most people that we could talk to today, they want something more. They want change in some aspect of their life. If we ask people how they feel about different facets of their life, virtually everyone would come up with stuff to say. You know, I want to be able to improve this or to change that or to have something different here. And so people want change. They want growth. They want something new. And what they need in many cases is they need someone to help them to find the tools to harvest that. Because again, that change is going to start with us changing. Life change starts with personal growth change. And so people need someone who can provide them with additional skills, who can help them to establish a vision of what's possible. And I feel like that's stuff that I'm inspired to be able to help people with. And in Vector and Cutco, I have the resource to be able to do that with not just tens or hundreds, but thousands of people a year that I can provide with some kind of ability to move their lives in a positive direction. And so the changing lives theme is really relevant to me because that's what I feel like Vector and Cutco helped do for me, what my mentors did for me. And I feel like I can help do for a lot of other people, helping people to develop their vision and helping people to have the skills to move in the direction that they want. That's what really makes me tick. Mm, I appreciate that, Dan. And when you point out that people want to grow and they want certain types of changes, it strikes me as an interesting circumstance right now that we're all being forced to change and grow based on what's happening in the world. And I'm reminding myself as I'm listening to you that uh, sometimes when the change or the growth is being forced or it comes unplanned or from the outside, we forget to appreciate that that was the very thing that we've wanted was to grow and to evolve or whatever other words we'd use. And I think it's a great reminder for all of us that uh, sometimes the changes that are forced out of necessity in the moment, we might not appreciate that gift that we're being given, which is to accelerate into the best version of ourselves. So I appreciate just thinking about what you're saying in the face of the necessity to change a lot of things personally and professionally right now. Yeah. And there's always a gift that comes out of every situation. And again, that's part of choosing the meaning for everything that happens in your life. As I look back over my life, John, there's not any challenge I've experienced that I don't look back and see something good that came out of it. And I have a vivid memory of having a meeting. It was, gosh, it was the summer of 1996, John. It was three years before you started. 
And there were these questions I would take people through that we called dream statements. I'm sure I did them with you at some point when you were in the business. And one of the questions was centered along the lines of, if I could turn back time, here is what I would change about how my life has gone. And I can remember a rep. I still remember her name. In fact, her name was Carolyn Magsalay, who, when she read her answer to that, she said, I would not change anything because everything that's happened to me up until now has helped shape me into who I am. And I like who I am now. Hmm. And I thought that was a really great perspective on how we're going to view challenges after the fact. When you're in the challenge, a lot of times you rue the challenge. You hate that it's there. You're pissed off that you were placed in that situation. But in the end, you look back and you go, boy, some good things came out of that that I needed. Some things came out of that that really helped me. And being able to see that in the moment helps you in that moment to handle the challenge much more confidently and with much more grace, I guess you could say. Yeah. That exercise you just described, I remember versions of exercises like that when you were my manager. And I'll tell you uh, an experience I had last night. I was leading a virtual digital workshop for a group of business coaches and they were all down in Australia. And it's so great that you can do this, right? And, and uh, I led them through an exercise, Dan, where I asked them all a question where I said, when was a time in your life when you had to adapt to a significant change you know, before this one that we're facing right now? And there was a second part to the question where I asked them, when you reflect on that story, what are some strengths or superpowers that were revealed from within you that were brought out because of needing to face that change? And we sent people into small groups. And, and these are all very successful business owners on this call. And they've been through a lot. And they get in these groups. And we had them share these stories with each other. And their instruction was, everybody share your story, take a minute or two. And then go back around and everybody share, what's the biggest lesson that you can take from listening to all of your stories? And then we brought them out of these small groups. And I did what I normally do. I said, hey, I'd love to hear from two, three, four, five of you. What are some lessons from your stories? And one after another, they shared. And you know, the first person shared how she realized that in reflecting back on a time, a change she had to adapt to, she found a new gear. It was like she was in fifth gear and discovered she had a sixth gear. And the next gentleman told a story about something very personal and emotional and how he found a new place in his heart that he had never found to be compassionate and empathetic. And then we got to the last person that I called on and he said, Hey, I just want to point something out. He said, you know, I just want to point out that it wasn't until we actually asked this question today that I actually have ever acknowledged A, the lesson from my story, and B, the strength that it revealed from within me. Mm. And Dan, I then turned to the, I don't know, 30 or so participants. I said, by show of hands, how many of you had a similar experience? And over half their hands went up. They were essentially acknowledging that it wasn't until they asked that question that that strength and that lesson actually became explicit or real in many cases. So I think there's a, a big lesson in what you just shared that you did years ago that I'm just swiped and I'm deploying now 20 years later that, you know, our questions that we ask ourselves right now are so important and that our questions change our future before the answer arrives, right? Like if, if we ask, what can I learn right now? What strengths am I 
are, can be revealed right now? How am I growing as a person? Like, I think what you taught me is that it oftentimes is not until we actually ask that question that the strength actually becomes usable, that the learning becomes vivid, right? So I'm just sharing with you. I just realized also I'm a guest host and I have no idea when I'm supposed to land this airplane. We could be going for hours and I'm, I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, as we wind it down, John, I would say that if I could summarize based on what you just said, the revelation of my own strengths or superpowers that have come out of various stories and various moments in my career, one of them is self-reliance. I think a large part of that was born out of me being a kid who maybe didn't always fit in. And I had to learn to rely on my own self for a lot of the things that I wanted to be able to do and, and achieve and, and become. My parents were a little more hands-off. They worked pretty hard. And so self-reliance was a key trait that came out of my experiences. And the other one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say is what I would call willingness. I was willing to make mistakes. I was willing to fail. I've always been willing to learn, ask questions. And um, when, when you put those two things together, I think you have a recipe for being able to figure things out in life and figure things out in your world. And those two things have helped me a lot over the time that I've uh, been in my professional career. That's awesome, Dan. Well, you've helped me. You've helped a lot of uh, others who are still good friends of mine today. And you've helped tens of thousands of folks that I've never met. And congrats to you on uh, not only the 100th episode, but becoming the kind of person who has so much to share with so many people. So, uh, Dan, thanks for this chance to be with you today, buddy. Yeah. Hey, John. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is Dan Cassetta. I just want to say thank you very much for listening to my story. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of my career experiences and some of my philosophies for business and life. I invite you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or through my website or the changinglivespodcast.com website. Thank you. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you to John Berghoff for guest hosting this particular episode. And I just want to leave you all with the challenge to let's all go out and be conduits for good ideas that can help other people to change their lives. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 